Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 77 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Todd Kearns, uh, singer, dancer, choreographer. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll musician for, you know, long time Canadian uh, expat living in the U.S., uh, but missing Canada. Right. Well, most people, Todd, will know you as the bass player in Slash's solo band, which is also called Slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. One of the longest band names ever. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And, and people won't know that you and I, we go back a long ways. I go back yes. to, I keep, I know you're saying you remember me. I don't believe you remember me, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I, I feel like you're, you're such a memorable cat. <laughs> Have you changed your look since back Totally. Then? Oh my God. I had long hair and was about a hundred pounds heavier. So I would look completely different than what I look like now. Wow. Are you in like some kind of witness protection program? What's <laughs> just to avoid you, Todd. It was just to yeah, avoid you. Yeah, exactly. Um, avoid predators. Yeah. But back in the late 80s, I was a music journalist. I was publishing print publications because there was no internet back then. And I was handed a demo tape. And I believe prior to hitting the record button here, we have co-confirmed that it probably came through Cargo Records, which was an indie distributor because they were distributing my magazine. And I knew the people there, they were based here in Montreal. You were based out West at the time. And they gave me this band, this demo from a band called the Age of Electric, which is a band that featured you, your brother, and then another set of brothers, which I can't imagine ever created any level of friction at all. <laughs> <laughs> I always used to equate it to the constant fighting over the, uh, the top bunk, but in every context of, you know, what you can imagine that to be. So it just kind of was constantly like that. It was, it was a strange thing because my brother and I have always been pretty chill and pretty easygoing. The other two were a lot more vocal about things they disagreed on, but that was kind of their dynamic and that's how they worked. Um, so, it, you know, it was the best and worst case, especially when you consider the kinks or Oasis or the Black Crows. There's so many brother situations where I'm just staggered by how awful their relationships are. But two sets um, of brothers sounds insane. <laughs> it almost sounds like it would be kind of, uh, you know, like like the, each set of brothers would team up against each other. But that really wasn't the case at all. It was actually fairly uh, it was a fairly uh, in the early days, especially like I think that's true of almost any band is is that sort of feeling of you're a fist, you know, the five of the three, four of us against the world, well, however many members of the band you happen to have. But for us, it was four against the world and no one could tell us different. And uh, I think often success comes in there and it starts to create sort of cracks and it's sort of this guy starts to be told he doesn't need those guys. And that guy gets to told he doesn't need these guys. You'd be better off. You know, that kind of stuff starts to happen. And we, uh, you know, that kind of stuff can happen. But back then, when you're when you're talking about having the audacity, we were like, we had people telling us, why are you bothering making these cassette tapes? Like, I remember being kind of like, we were slugging out in these, in these cover rooms. Cause back there in, in out West, it was just super normal that all the clubs were in these hotels that had a rock bar and a country bar and a strip bar, like all in the same yeah. hotel. And we would just play week after week after week, just traveling around all across Canada. And, uh, 
you know, we just, it was a cover thing, but we were always writing songs and we had the audacity to kind of go, here's one of ours in between, you know, this Aerosmith song and this Pink Floyd song or something. And, and they would, uh, and people liked what we were doing and, and no one told us not to. And we wrote enough of them that we said, we're going to make a cassette. And we, we made another one. The idea of making compact discs at the time, even though I think they were starting to present themselves, just seemed like, what are we from the future? (laughs) (laughs) We'll make cassettes and we'll sell them. And I remember like this one manager guy of of another band at the time, he said to us, but you're competing with Billy Joel and blah, blah, blah. I don't know why the name Billy Joel came up, but that was the one I've always retained. Why am I competing with Billy Joel? He's not selling cassette tapes at this crappy bar that we're playing. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it was, it was just this sort of like young, um, you know, we're just going to do what we do. And if you like it, great. If you don't, that's also fine. We don't care. You know, we're going to keep doing it. The band was called Age of Electric. I don't know if I mentioned it when we started because the, the familiarity yeah, yeah. I have with you. Um, and the band went on to have a certain level of acclaim, and I'm not taking a shot at it. I just feel, and I'm sure you've been asked this before in the past or talked about it, that I just, Age of Electric was always a band that I felt didn't have a fair shake. There were other bands that were becoming bigger, getting signed, doing other stuff. And I was always looking to you and your brother and being like, what's going on here? Like, why is this not happening? Did you feel that way or was it different experience for you? I mean, you had a couple of hits, you had gold albums, you did the thing. But to me, the band, it just wasn't indexing as well as I felt they should have because I really liked the music. Hang on, I'm looking up indexing. Just <laughs> <laughs> I know you're smarter than that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, I, I, I would 100% agree with you. It's just that in, in a funny way, you know, by the time this is the kind of mentality that we had was it was kind of like going up to the velvet rope of a party or a, or a club that, you know, you weren't on the list, but you kept showing up and showing up and showing up until finally one, one day somebody, fine, just go in. You guys just go in. That's what it kind of felt like as far as the acceptance within the industry or being noticed. Um, because you become big fish in small ponds and then you got to go to bigger ponds and suddenly you're in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver and, and, you know, we actually were traveling to places like New York City and Los Angeles, doing a lot of showcasing and that kind of stuff while we were at it. Um, so by the time we had actually kind of officially reached a certain level of signing to um, Mercury Records out of New York City and having management out of New York City and moving to Vancouver and recording with Bob Rock and, you know, everything was sort of like in this position to, you know, all these stars were aligning. But the weirdest thing was we would record a bunch of stuff with with a guy like Bob Rock who had done Metallica and Motley Crue and had a great number of very successful things. But none of that turned into, you know, the 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 just big prize of it. Or the it next big thing, the escalation of it, the next big tour, the next big album, right? Yeah, it was just sort of like and I think a certain amount of it is is having the audacity to be kind of like you know, we don't really want to play that game. We don't want to play the bring in the outside songwriters and the da, 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 da. And, you know, I think we'd kind of proven to ourselves when we started to have some hits with things that we had created. And uh, and by hits, I mean, you know, like people knew these songs, people knew who we were. And by 97, when we finally released the final album, it was sort of, um, you know, it was as if we'd kind of worked all this way because we got nominated for at the Junos for best new group, which we all laughed at because we were probably 10 years old at that right. point. As, um, but that's the kind of game you play is just, you know, the overnight sensation of just 10 years of slugging and grinding. And but it's sort of like we worked all that time 
to just kind of get the door to open and stand on the starting position to head into that next level, but looked at each other and just said, we, this is not happening anymore. (laughs) And having, you know, again, I think just as, as much as, you know, the, the, the audacity to just have the audacity to, to do what we were doing, we had the audacity to kind of stop doing it when it was like, this is the time you should be out there hitting it even harder than ever. And I think we all had the, you know, we all thought, well, I've done it once. I'll just do it again. You know what I mean? And it's, if there's any lesson to be learned, it's that the industry is, is it's not easy and it's not. Yeah. Unforgiving would be a better. (laughs) And you are easily, because what happened to us is my brother and I started a band called static and stereo. Great band. Also great album. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and, you know, we, we, we struggled to make that record because we sort of, in the previous incarnation had really played our own game and we really didn't want to listen to anybody. And and I really admired that feeling of having all four of us got each other's backs that way. And then, you know, I sort of kind of decided, well, okay, so we've worked this hard to get to this next level that you're, you're talking about. What is the missing element? And I thought to myself, well, perhaps the missing element is that we have not, played ball in a certain degree with the industry, with the the, the people who play. Because when you're young, you think, that guy's driving a fancy car. This guy has an amazing office. Look at the suits this guy wears. They know what they're talking about. <laughs> and you, and you, you very quickly kind of learn that that's not necessarily the case. Because although the people have had, everybody's had successes and failures, but we only remember their successes, unless the failures are that grandiose. But, but it was a uh, strange time, Todd, because I could... I could also demonstrate, you know, one of my favorite examples of when everything is in place and still doesn't work would have been my close friends, the guys in I Mother Earth, and I knew their manager, and I've been with that band literally from the demo days. That first album, uh, big, you know, it was Capital out of the U.S. It was Mike Klink producing it at the time, and at the time, Mike, I mean, it just come off of massive Guns N' Roses stuff. Everything was aligned, and in the States, I mean, that album did not, performed. They did not recoup on that. Now they did well in Canada and it created a good base for them to launch from. But you could also look at the other side of that and see when everything is right. And that is a great example of a band where everything was right, including great songs and great music and great musicianship. And it just didn't click in this, at least in the States, it didn't do what the hope or intent was of it to do. So even those suits, it's all luck. They don't know. It is. And I think that, you know, having lived in this industry as long as I have, you know, and and witnessing firsthand that shift that started to happen in the 90s, um, you know, where an album like Nevermind comes out and, you know, I don't know what the actual stats are on it, but I remember the sort of the the mentality was like, we're going to put out this record. It's going to be a cool, you know, alternative underground record, Um, you know, so they only made X amount of of, of product to sell because they didn't expect it. And it, it, it connected and it exploded, you know yeah. what I mean? And it, and it changed everything, you know? And of course you'll have people after the fact kind of having this sort of like, Oh, I totally, the first time I heard that record, I knew this was going to be a platinum selling smash. And I, w- I would look at them and I go, no, you didn't know that. Atlantis Alan- was the that. same thing. Jagged little pill was the exact same situation. You know, Absolutely. When it got picked up, I mean, again, in reverse, her, her image in, in, in Canada at least was, she was a teen idol. She had done some teen stuff on MCA Universal. She'd done kids shows and stuff. And that album got passed over by tons of A&R people. 
Um, and, and, you know, to this day, probably one of the greatest rock debuts of all time, pop rock debuts of all time. You, you just, we don't know. You don't know. And you're absolutely correct. I think there is a certain amount of like, this is great and I love it. And that's really all you can do is, is, and I think if there was any advice I would have handed to myself when I was younger, um, especially post age of electric, because I really kind of, you know, I sort of handed myself over to the beast in a way. Like I was kind of like, clearly these people know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, and I, and I sort of like realized, you know, once we were into it that I was like, some of these people don't know what they're talking about or like anybody, um, you know, the person that's kind of like, uh, giving you direction or advice, they've got somebody above them trying to direct them, you know, and, and it sort of gets really messy, especially when you've got, cause in the industry, there are people who genuinely want to do, do well and do good work and make great music and make great art. And, and when those people are representing you and they love you and they found you and they want to do something with you, sometimes that person gets let go of the label or the management company or whatever it is that you happen to be on. And you can often be set adrift. And that's happened to me on a number of occasions too, where, you know, the other thing that static and stereo had to deal with was, was a real shift in, in record sales where you're dealing with, you know, the percentage of sales not happening in, in a, in a global sense when you're a Canadian act and your whole game is in Canada so at that time, yeah. it just, it was just reduced where we would show up and play sold out gigs. And I'd be like, you know, aware of how the sales aren't there, but you're like, why does everybody here know our songs? And, you know, and, and, and they're all here. If every one of these people in all these towns is buying this record, we have a hit on our hands. And we had like a, you know, um, we had a, I think it was number 11 at the end of the day on rock radio kind of thing going on. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was seemed as on paper as successful as the previous record, the age of electric record, but it just didn't translate because there was a number of other, uh, you know, factors at play now. Yeah. And for people who don't understand the magnitude of the difference between Canada and the U S back then gold is, was 50,000 units. And at the time yeah. in the U S it was a half a million. <laughs> it's not I know. It's a it's bit sad. of a gap there. <laughs> the funny thing is we had the audacity, the age of electric, because we had, we had signed to mercury records out of the U S out of New York city. We had made a record, the final age of electric record called make a pesta pet with their money. We made it in Vancouver at mushroom studios. Um, in the interim, as we were doing this, a perfect example of what can happen. The president of mercury gets changed and when that happens, a lot of the time, you know, things that haven't come out yet or acts that aren't successful will just get put on shelves because they're not my act. You know, the new president's kind of like, I don't know who this is. I, I got to make my guys. bones. Yeah, I'm going to make my exactly. bones sound my bands. Yeah. So we eventually got let go. But in, when we had made the deal, we had the audacity to say, well, we want to keep Canada independent because we have built a an independent uh, career for ourselves in Canada. And we feel like we would like to keep it for ourselves. And I remember the Americans attitude was kind of like, knock yourself out. This is, you know, the population of New York state or something, (laughs) you know, they, they didn't really care about the Canadian side. So the win on our hand, on our hand was to take a record that we'd made. They cut us loose. They let us keep the record. We just handed it to universal Canada and said, we're ready to put this out. And, you know, they basically were in a position where they'd have to make the record. They just had to, you know, give us some video money, some promo money. And, uh, you know, then you got remote control and the rest is a very brief glimpse of history. (laughs) We're going to, we're going to do the classic star Wars timeline jump in these conversations. We're going to go from present to back, jump all around. Um, 
So 2010 rolls around and I start hearing these murmurs that Slash is going to do some solo stuff and that's fantastic and start hearing some music and then I see and I'm like, oh my God, that's Todd from Age of Electric and oh my God, Todd is playing bass in Slash's band because <laughs> again, my relationship to you was not just as the front man of, of Age of Electric and Static and Stereo and all the stuff you were doing, but was a front man who sings really well but also plays guitar. Your brother John in my brain had always been the bass player. So Talk a little bit about what happened. How do you meet Slash? Why the bass? Where was the bass at in your life? This is a bass podcast. I'm curious about when it started taking a more frontline thing for you. I love the what the hell happened? <laughs> but it's shocking, right? Because you know, you feel like you know the person, and then you're like, Slash's band, bass, what? <laughs> Well, it's funny because it's funny that you bring this up because one of my favorite topics is the fact that I started on bass and it's a true story. Like, um, and I, it's even funny how it started because I, I always tell the story how I had started playing guitar. My father, you know, got me like a, a cheap Epiphone acoustic and I, you know, I clearly had like found my thing. Um, it wasn't going to be sports and it wasn't going to be, you know, whatever academia. I had sort of like, this is my thing. He's obsessed with this. Let's, you know, that's, that's what he's into. So my father in his weird dad wisdom said, well, you have a guitar. We should probably get you a bass. And I don't know why he would have thought that. Why, why, why wouldn't you think we should get you an electric guitar? You know, connection is strange. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's very strange. My father was like, he's musical, but he wasn't really like, you know, he didn't play in a band or like that, but he could always pick up a guitar and sing a few songs. Um, so we ended up at a, at a store in, in Edmonton. Uh, my, my father's family's from Alberta. So we were out there and we just walked in and he, I remember like there was just a Gibson EB3 on the wall and played it and was like, cool. And I really was very rudimentary. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but, um, we had relocated back to Saskatchewan. We'd lived up in Northern Manitoba when I was younger and then had relocated back to Saskatoon. And I remember in the early days of my being in school uh, with this whole new vibe, it had come up that the kid I was sitting next to was sort of like, do you play music? And I go, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I, it just came up that I had this Gibson bass and he just had the, you know, it's just funny how the word Gibson, you know, in, in a, in a, in a high school sort of garage band setting of like, this guy actually has a Gibson, you know? Um, and it just turned out that his brother was in a band and they didn't, didn't have a bass player. So the next thing I knew I was playing with these guys, five, five years, probably older than me. Um, I really wasn't that great, but the ability to play catch up that fast, um, you know, which really helps, I think when you're, when you're a kid and you start playing with guys who are better than you, you've got to step your game up and, uh, it's sort of, you know, you, you kind of do or die in that situation. So, um, you know, now to the, the, the plot thins here, I don't mean to make it such a long story, <laughs> but, um, you know, so I started playing in a band and I, and I, I was happy. I, and I've said this a million times, I would have been happy if that was the end of the story. Like if I just, then I was just the bass player in a band and I'm the guy in the back smiling, having a, having a blast. Um, but then it became like, like you do in all high school bands, um, you know, case, why don't you sing one? Okay. Why don't you sing another one? You know, and it became apparent that they liked the way I sang and slowly, you know, this, this sort of five piece thing had suddenly pared down to a three piece and I was the bass player singer and guys like sting, you know, who were heroes of mine as a kid. Um, for whatever reason, I've always, you know, it's funny because I, Brent Fitz and I always talk about this. Brent Fitz, the drummer for for Slash. He plays piano. He plays bass. He plays bass in this Tuke project that he and I have. Um, and 
we just kind of consider ourselves, I hate to use the word pretentiously, musician, because, uh, you know, if, 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 if we show up at a jam session, I'm going to jump on whatever instrument's not being played. You know, if, if, if you want me to, I can tinker around on the keys if, if I have to. I'm not great, but I can get around on it. I can play the drums if I have to. Again, somebody else should, but I will. <laughs> you know, but guitar, bass, drums, I mean, guitar, bass, uh, vocals, that kind of stuff, you know, became natural for me. And it taught me a lot in those early days playing bass and singing was the ability to play a line. Like when you listen to guys like Sting or you know, a Getty is an extreme example, but yeah. um, guys who are playing parts that don't really sync up with what's being sung. So it really taught me how to, uh, you know, separate your brain where this part of your brain is doing the singing and that part of your brain is doing the playing because, and that still works even in a, in a guitar context yeah. and probably any other instrument really. But, um, for me it really worked. So it's not that bizarre. What ended up happening was that, um, I met Kurt Dahl, the drummer for the age of electric. And we sort of went, Hey, my brother plays guitar. He went, my brother plays guitar. And I go, my, my little brother plays bass. Cause my little brother in my absence, while I ran off to, to, you know, try and be a rock star. He picked up whatever bass was left at home. Probably the Gibson EB3. I probably had something else. <laughs> left. And uh, became a much better bass player than me, really, honestly. He became like a, uh, uh, he was really into Steve Harris from Iron Maiden and all that kind of stuff. He's a great player. Um, yeah. yeah, and so when I came home, I'd be like, damn, this guy's giving me a run for my money. And when we decided to put The Age of Electric together, which was just called Electric first, uh, at first we, uh, I just said, well, I'll just play rhythm guitar and I'll move out front, you know, and, and John will play bass. And, and that was sort of how that happened. So now when I talk about like, there wasn't like, and then I never touched a bass for 30 years. <laughs> you know, it wasn't really like that. Cause in any other context, I was always playing bass. Um, you know, and I always loved the, the interplay between the bass and the guitar and, and the way that the bass you have to play with everybody. You know what I mean? Like, where the, I know in playing with Slash, Slash is doing his thing. Slash is out, you know, I always equate it to like when you're playing a live uh, festival and he's way out on that that big, uh, you know, the, the stage that goes way out into the audience. Like the and walkway or whatever stage. it is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we're back. I've got to play with him, you know, he, but he's allowed to just go out and uh, on a, you know, just fly around the room and we got to kind of hold it together. So I'm playing with him, but I'm also playing with the drummer, obviously, to keep it together. And then I'm the, I'm the main backup singer with Miles. So he and I are interlocked through the entire show. So there's a weird connection to this whole thing, all of which I've learned from, you know, a million years of just doing this. So, uh, when I came to Vegas and I think this is the, 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 a long answer part to a, <laughs> a very small question. Well, I came to Vegas, um, in 2000, I think I started coming here around 2003, just back and forth. I had friends here playing and I would come down and do session work and come down and do sit in with these guys, sit in with that. Um, I really started to kind of take off my, cause the cool thing about coming down to, especially another country is the fact that they don't care who Todd Kearns is from the age of electric gold album. What in Canada, who cares? You know what I mean? Like you really have to kind of re start all over again as just this guy named Todd he, he plays music. Okay, cool. And um, I really put myself out there as sort of like, I can play guitar, I can sing, and I can play bass. You know, So I would do a lot of sessions playing bass. I would do a lot of sessions um, playing guitar. I'd do a lot of sessions singing, and, and it just sort of presented itself as uh, I could do whatever whatever you needed. I eventually landed back in the position of being a lead singer who played rhythm guitar or or second guitar or, or in often case, just guitar. Um, 
But then when the slash situation presented itself, it was sort of more like a a, a all in an all in kind of thing. So there are bass players out there who get kind of ruffled at the fact that this jackass comes along and puts on a bass and gets this gig, you know, and I'm like, it's not like I don't have that bass player brain. I really feel that I've always had it in terms of like the way I like to play. Like I know that, you know, there are certainly other kinds of bass players and there's you know, no limit as to how you can do it. Um, I just like the way we do things and the way the kind of players that I like and the way it sits within what Slash is doing and that kind of stuff. So that's, I know it's a long answer. No, you I love it. Talk. Come on. You not, can edit all that down. Not, none of that's <laughs> coming out. It's staying. And so how, day one meeting Slash, how does that happen? What's the connection? Well, the funny thing is to backtrack to 91, 90, 91, I think it is. Age of Electric went down to L.A. And we were doing showcase stuff and we were down there for a, a stretch. I want to say it felt like a month, but I don't remember. But we were doing the whole thing, like handing out flyers on the Sunset Strip. Everybody thinks that like January 1st, 1990, the Sunset Strip closed. Like it was like <laughs> the 90s happened and that whole thing from the 80s. But it wasn't. It, it went on for years. It's. I mean, it still kind of happens in its own way, but not for like sure. it was. Sure. At that time, it was like a party on sunset on the on the Sunset Strip. You didn't even need to go into a club. You could just stay on the Strip and have a great time. Um so we did a, a show at the Whiskey A Go Go, and we did a show at the Roxy. Um, I, I can't remember how it was all organized as some sort of Sunset Strip type, uh, Hollywood uh, showcasey type thing, and nothing really came of it. But it was sort of like the idea of like uh, we have a cassette tape. Let's have let's just go do this crazy thing, uh, and we would go to the Rainbow as you did every night and have food after and. Uh, I've told Slash this story a million times, but he was sitting in the corner booth. We were sitting at the November rain booth. <laughs> I call it the November <laughs> rain booth. It's just in the back of the room. There's this larger booth that ha- if you watch the November rain, booth, they're all video, sitting yeah. at that back booth. Yeah. yeah. So we're all sitting there. Slash is in the corner booth that we didn't. Well, to the, now it's sort of more known as his booth. But and he just kind of gets up, you know, and at the time, this is like this is between it was before Use Your Illusions came came out. So. In our opinion, they were the best band on the planet. We, we, Appetite for Destruction had changed everything for us, as it changed a lot of things for a lot of people. But And me, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and so he gets up and comes to our table. And he's kind of like, you know, he's he's Slash. He's got the hair and the leather jacket, and he's got a, a drink, and he's like, hey, who are you guys? And we're like, what? <laughs> and he sits down with us, and he just, no way, Canada, cool. And he just hung out with us for an hour or something like that, just drinking and chilling and and then wandered off into the night like Batman. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I brought that story up to him and he always, and he just goes, uh, well, was I nice? He's all kind of nervous. <laughs> he remember any of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I go, yeah, you were great. You really were awesome. You sat down with us and, and you, and you went around the table. So, so Todd, John, you remember like we had a light guy with us and our sound guy. I remember our, our, our lighting guy would tell the story all the time. He goes, slash lit my last cigarette. Cause he quit smoking after that. I don't know. You could smoke inside back then. Um, so anyway, long story short, um, uh, he has no memory of that. So when I say that connection to Slash has nothing to do with the gig that end, ends up <laughs> happening, literally, geez, I guess 20 years later almost? Oh, my God. Really weird to think how these decades just go by so fast. But um, Brent Fitz, our drummer, who I've known for 30-plus years, he used to play in, in in a band from Winnipeg. He played with Kenny Shields from Streetheart and – and Harlequin and different things like that. But back then we used to travel around the same clubs and he played in that band and I played in this band. And so we knew each other in a very sort of like, Hey dude, how are you? And then, you know, that was it. Um, 
but we got to know each other when I when I came to Vegas. He had he had come to Vegas. He was living in California. He he's one of those guys that had moved to L.A. He's gonna I'm like wow, Brent Fitz moved to L.A. Crazy. A bunch of them did. Jason Hook from Five Finger Death Punch was from the Toronto area, and Phil X from the Toronto area. He had sure. come to L.A. and now he's in Bon Jovi. And all these Canadian guys would 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 make this trip. I was like never crossed my mind because I was in Vancouver having a career uh, in Canada in general. Um, but when it presented itself, it was like, okay, cool. So I find myself here. Brent Fitz is here. We're, we're tight. We're bros. And, uh, I just got a text from him one day and, and he just said, um, the new drummer for slash is from Winnipeg <laughs> is how he put it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, that's so cool. And I remember like, I had no, no feelings of like, get me the gig, get me in the band. It was just sort of like, you know, he just is playing with Slash. Like, that's so cool. Awesome. Good for you. And then, uh, I've told this story before, but my, I was in the middle of buying a house. That's how well I was doing down here was, you know, I was working a lot and doing well enough that I considered, well, I guess I should buy one of these very affordable housings that they're dealing with down here in, in, in Las Vegas. So my father came down and because uh, he's a grown up and knows what the hell we're doing. And I, you know, I didn't want to have to deal with that without somebody who knows what the hell they're doing. So he clearly he knows what he's doing. He bought you a bass after the guitar. <laughs> We've established that. Todd. <laughs> yeah, this is all his fault. <laughs> you know, as much as he might have complained about it, it's really his, it's his own fault. Uh, but anyway, so he came down and uh, we're looking at houses. We're getting ready to close on the very one I'm sitting in. And, uh, and we're sitting at Chili's, uh, you know, just having a burrito or whatever. And, and my phone rings and it's Brent Fitz. And he goes, um, I pick it up and he goes, uh, Hey, you want to come down to LA and jam tomorrow? And I go, I, I remember looking across the table at my father and kind of going, would you be up for going to LA tomorrow? And he goes, I've never been. And I'm like this man who grew up in Pinoca, Alberta <laughs> and then lived for a chunk of time in Northern Manitoba and then brought his family back to Saskatchewan has never been to Los Angeles. I was like, well, that kind of seals the deal. So the next morning we get up, I throw my Fender P in, in the back of the car and we drive to L.A., you know. It's so like, he tells you, bring the bass, not the guitar. Well, yeah, he was kind of like, and, and the thing is that I think people, anybody who knew me to jam was kind of, well, what am I doing? Yeah, come, just you know, bass. And I go, okay, cool. Because the thing is that they had, they had a lineup, like they had guys. And I was mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, it's, it's sorted, whatever. But for whatever reason, it didn't work out. So I, uh, I come down there and it's, and I always tell the story, like I, I, I only remember running through like night train, you know, I never really listened to anything because I was kind of like, uh, appetite for destruction is just kind of in me. Like I know yeah. I could play, I could literally play most of the guitar parts. Like I'd probably do a very generic, basic version of, of the guitar solo type stuff, but I can, I've played the entire album in some fashion in my life since it came out. So I just kind of showed up. Okay, night train, here we go. And I, I really honestly feel like that was one of the only things we did. Um, and then it was sort of like, uh, okay, next week we're doing Jay Leno and you know, all these crazy. And I was like, whoa, 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 what's going on? Cause I had really built a career and a life for myself in Las Vegas. And it was a really difficult thing for me to kind of have to go, oh man, you know, so I had to go back to LA and finish up a weekend of gigs that I had booked with my local band and all that kind of stuff. And it was a really awful feeling to be like, guys, I'm sorry, but this thing has come up and, uh, and off I went. And, and then, yeah, and that was sort of it. It just sort of, it, it was, we hit the ground running really. Cause they, they were slash had a, 
solo album out that had multiple singers. It had Lemmy and Andrew Stockdale from uh, Wolf Mother, Iggy Pop, uh, Chris Cornell was on it, Kid Rock, and Miles Kennedy, of course, who ended up being the, the lead singer on the, in the touring act. It went on to be the conspirators and the blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it literally was like within a week or two, we were like doing uh, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and Craig Ferguson's, uh, you know, James Corden's spot on CBS now was Craig Ferguson at the time. And George Lopez had a TV show on TBS before Conan was there. And so it was like, it was just like, boom, like I hadn't been on any of these TV shows before. And suddenly it was happening. And then we were doing... You know, we had to do a, uh, and have to do, but we did a, uh, a warm up show at the Roxy in uh, Hollywood. And uh, yeah, and then that, that was, that was 10 years ago. That was, well, almost 11 years ago now because it was, it was 2010, April 2010. You've done a million things. We'll talk about a lot of them, but I, I do feel like that moment is an anchor moment that to a certain degree puts you back on the map, puts you back really in the game makes you more visible, which makes you more attractive to others wanting to do things with you. Do you see it that way as well? Or was it for you just another gig? Um, I think I see it like that now. Like yeah. at the time it was, you know, okay. Like, cause at the time we really had no, no sense of like, it's just going to be like a, like a, like a few fly out like a couple months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I just thought like, is this like a thing we're going to support this record that he has coming out and then it's going to be like high five, good game. And never see each other again. Um, you know, at in that moment it was kind of like, okay, well, I guess this is something. Um I, I was really honestly, and I and I, I don't mean to like to to play it down, but um I was really actually kind of at a point in my life where I had been traveling and killing myself for years, um, touring and 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 that whole thing. And then living in Vancouver, which was it's a struggle in any city that is um it's it's worse now, but like you know, like it's expensive to live there. It's big and expensive, and suddenly, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I suddenly found myself in Las Vegas. And and the thing about Las Vegas is if you walk into a casino, any casino, except for right now because of the way things are, but when things are normal, you walk into a casino and there's a hundred places to play. There's there's a guy playing piano over there. There's a duo playing over there. There's a show band in there. I'm saying there's like multiple restaurants and venues and showrooms and things. And I was always in love with the idea of living in a city that I could be sitting here and someone could call me and go, hey, dude, what are you doing tonight? Can you come down and play guitar with us because our guitar player is sick? And I always thought, hell yeah. I mean, and and I, I was in love with the idea that I can play music and all my friends were guys who were transplants who'd been spit out of a, you know, they had a record deal and they yeah. had a chance in Ohio or sure. from wherever they, a lot of them were Hollywood guys and, and, and they just kind of found themselves here making a living, playing guitar, singing, playing music. A lot of it cover music, a lot of it uh, in the, in a very similar way. I had kind of built a band that was sort of created in a jamming cover band kind of situation. Sin City Sinners, right? The Sinners turned into, right. quote unquote, an original act. Right. Um, we now call it the original sin um, when we do it, which is very rare. But um, it... Uh, so I was very content. Like I said, I bought a house. I was like, you know, I got to sleep in the same bed every day. I was finally making money, um, you know, and uh, living in an affordable place. So I'm going to stop you right there because I'm super curious still about, let's just talk slash in general, because you know my sure. background in interviewing a million people. But in in the career of interviewing a million people, there is something really iconic 
slash characteristic about slash. And it's not just the top hat and the sunglasses and the cut uh, shirt. And he in of himself is true and real, likable, always came over, always talk, would remember who you were. I mean, these were my experiences with slash over the years from early nineties and on. Mm -hmm. But with that, he is a character and it's hard when you're in a room not to go, my God, that's Slash. I mean, the top hat and the curly hair and the sunglasses. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the guy. It's the guy. Yeah. When you're playing with him and you're playing those iconic songs, does it impact you in the way that I remember meeting him? And still, as you're speaking to that person or with them, you're still in the back of your brain going, that's the guy. That's the, that's the top hat guy. <laughs> um, it It's weird because I think when when in the early days – you're just trying to really focus on doing the job, doing the gig, doing it well. Um, so you're, you're kind of like, you're so lost in, in that act of just, you know, doing, holding up my, my part of the job, my part of the, of the deal here. Um, but there, there was a couple of really telling moments. Like I remember playing a gig, um, and we were on the bus, like we had finished the gig, we got on the bus and, uh, you know, in, in, I, I had, you know, I had, levels of, or experiences with quote unquote fame, you know, and signing autographs and that kind of stuff. Um, but it was sort of like, you kind of just become so accustomed to whatever your situation is. You just kind of adjust very quickly. You just kind of go, okay, this is what it is. And, but I remember sitting on a bus on our bus at the end of the night outside of the venue. And I saw these, um, these, uh, you know, the crowd of people was coming out and I could see them. Um, but this, uh, young girl, they brought up her Les Paul, which I, I, I guess was sent backstage. I, I know now it was, it had been sent backstage somehow and was signed by slash. And when they opened the case to see this reaction and her crying, it, it really like, it really affected me in, in a, in a very like, um, like it was a, a very revelatory moment to think like, oh, this is, this is really important to people. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's a legend. Really, He's a legend. Yeah. And, and, and of course he is. Cause he, you know, I, you know, I, the weird thing is it's like, you know, we talked this morning, you know I mean? It's kind of like, I know him, he's a friend of mine, but you know, it, it's one of those things where he's, he deserves all of it. He is, totally. he is my favorite all around kind of guitar player. And when I say kind of guitar player, he's the, he has all the elements of, of guitar playing that I like, um, where the histrionics of it can be, He's, you know, he, he's, he's always striving to do better. Like if you, if you know him, he's always got a guitar in his hands and you're kind of like, you're, you're, it's kind of like that joke of like the guy who's all like super like jacked up from the gym. And you're kind of like, I think you're done, bro. I think you've, <laughs> you've achieved what you were, you were trying to do. And, uh, with, with his guitar playing, you're kind of like, he could have stopped growing, um, as a guitar player in 1995 and we, and just now from then on just gone through the motions and done what we like that he does, but he's just growing all the time. Like he's a better guitar player today than he was five years ago. And he'll be a better guitar player in five years than he is today. It is the and, surprising thing when people haven't seen the band, it's a surprising thing to see because it's the fountain of youth. He looks like he hasn't aged and he plays better than he ever has. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's one of those things where when you're heading into quote unquote heritage act area, you know what I mean? Where Guns N' Roses has been around since 86 or Classic whatever it is, 87. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you, 
but for whatever reason, I mean, for multiple reasons, Slash has managed to sort of carve out this silhouette thing, you know, where you can look at the silhouette of Slash and go, that's Slash. You know what I mean? Like you can just look at the, the hair and the hat and the, and the Les Paul and go, you know exactly who it is. And that's, that's up there in the Mickey Mouse. Territory yeah, it's, of, it's Keith Richards-esque. It totally is. It is. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that I've learned a lot from him as far as just the way he handles his business, the way he handles life. Um, you know, just in that he's, you know, he works really hard. Like we're, we're constantly, when we do rehearsals, it's no joke. And there'll be time I've made the mistake. I was telling the story the other day to a friend of mine, how he was coming home from, well, first of all, he, he texts me and goes, you know, Hey, you, you want to jam on or rehearse on this day? And I go, sure. That sounds great. And I remember looking at my, in my phone or whatever, and just coming across the guns and roses dates that he was on and realizing he was flying home from like, he would be flying home from South Africa and then we would be rehearsing like that next day. Crazy. And I remember thinking that's how his work ethic kind of works. And on top of that, I have the, 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 you know, I'm like, oh, this will be an easy rehearsal because he's going to be jet lagged. You know, <laughs> he's, he's going to be tired. We're, you know, we're going to go in, we're going to play. Lots of ballads. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know about that, but we're going to play a few hours and then we'll, well, we'll, I'll, you know, we'll be at, uh, eating burritos shortly after that. But it was one of the longest rehearsals we've ever done. Like he just, you know, at least possibly in my mind, like I just wasn't prepared mentally for like, oh, right, this is a slash rehearsal. He wants to, he, he said to me once, he goes, you know, well, astronauts, when they prepare to go to space, it, you know, there's a whole process to it. And I thought, wow, it's really interesting that he equates getting ready to go play on stage and do a run of dates with the act of traveling into outer space, you but know, you, 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 you see, it, you see it with all of the real pros and Metallica is a great example of that if you watch the, their videos in their jam room, it's just hours and hours of playing before they even get on the stage. And it's, it is very illuminating to, to realize that the, the combat looks really easy. If you spent a lot of time in the gym, I think that's right. I think you're, you're absolutely correct that it's, I think it's a 10,000 hours thing, you know, I mean, yeah. that, that old thing of, you know, well, when the opportunity presents itself, you have to be ready. So with Slash, you know, just his his tenacity and his his level of, uh, you know, he, he just doesn't want to go out there not ready for it. And it has to be muscle memory for him. You know, what I mean, like he, he loves to rehearse before the singer even shows up or even if, you know, or just play without vocals so that there's not even that guide to tell you that, oh, this verse is half as long as the previous verse. It's kind of like, no, you just need to know that, you know, we need to know that so that when the singer comes in, we're not relying on him to, to, to steer the ship. It's like, we just know the music. And, um, so, you know, when, to go back to your question about like, whether it sort of hits me, like there have been times, there have been times where I'm standing like, you know, where he's playing the solo, we don't play Sweet Child of Mine lately anymore, but um, back in the day, we'd be playing the solo to Sweet Child of Mine, and I played that in a million cover bands since as long as it's been around. <laughs> right. And, you know, you just kind of like, it's sort of, yeah, of course I know that song. Let's go. It's, you know, boom, and you play it. But then every once in a while, I would stop and go, wow, that's the guy. Like, it's, 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 and I've talked about this with a lot of my other friends who play with, with, you know, with name acts. It's kind of like you stop and you, you realize like, no, this, that's the guy. This is, that's him. He played this that you're hearing on the radio a million times a day all over the planet. That's him playing this. Right. Solo. There's no that without this. 
No. (laughs) And there's moments on stage, you know, where we would play and, and, and I was always kind of like really rattled by how emotionally invested people get. Like people are brought to tears on occasion. And I'm like, wow, I, 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 I love that music does that to people, but you know, it was times like that that it really made you realize how, what this is, you know what I mean? And I don't, I don't really, I don't take myself very seriously, but I take what we do very seriously. So I don't, I don't really think I, I think I have a small, I'm a small part of this, this process that's happening. But, um, you know, I'm very aware that, yeah, he's the guy and this is that music and it's really important to people. Where did did the nickname Dammit come from? (laughs) Well, it's always been around as far as whenever your name is Todd, it's, Toddzilla, Todd Dammit, Rhymes with God Dammit, which is <laughs> so clever. <laughs> but uh, when I came down to Vegas, it was one of those things that, uh, like when I was telling you before, when I came to Vegas, it was kind of like, you know, that's all great and everything that you have a gold album in Canada, but no one here cares. Not that they don't care. I mean, people respect whatever it is that you do, but it's sort of like that thing of like having to build. They didn't know who Todd Kearns was. Todd Kearns and Age of Electric. They don't know what any of that stuff is. So it was funny to just watch the nickname kind of really grow. And Vinnie Paul, rest his soul, Pantera, yeah. um, uh, he was living here and he loved that. He would shout it across casinos, Todd, damn it, at the top of his <laughs> lungs. And I'd look and I'd go, I guess Vinnie's here. Um, uh, he didn't even know who Todd Kearns was. I remember my friend, my friend, everybody, he's like, he's in a, he's in a perpetual gym class. Like everybody's by their last name. And then Kearns was here last night, me and Kearns. And, and then J- Vinnie's looking at him like, who? Todd, Todd, damn it. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, um, so that name just kind of caught on and, and it's one of those things that it really wasn't a thing until slash started saying it on stage, Todd, damn it, Kearns and blah, 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 blah. And a friend of mine made a damn it t-shirt for my, for birthday one year. And I wore it on a, uh, we shot a DVD in 2011, uh, in Stoke, uh, Trent on Stoke, England, Stoke on Trent. I'm sorry. A, a, where slash is, uh, was born. Technically he was born in London apparently, but he was, uh, they lived in Stoke on Trent. But it became like, it's like it's on hats and t-shirts. It's, it's like a brand now. It's a, you've turned it into a business door. Damn it. It's weird because people would, and that's what I was wearing that shirt on that DVD. And everybody's like, we're going to get one of those shirts. I go, (laughs) this is the shirt. There's only this shirt. And, uh, you know, then my webmaster said, well, why don't we do a run of these, you know, just a run of, a t- black t-shirt with a damn it across the front and that sold out and we made more and we made more and it, it's grown and we have like a, a company out of Toronto that does um, that licenses for their version. And so it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Cause I don't really, you know, when I, I'm a musician, like I like playing music, everything else, as far as like, say the, the podcast thing that I do or, or the merchandise and all that kind of stuff. That's this bizarre other, these other things that have presented themselves along the way that I, that I love and, and enjoy them. But, um, just something I never expected to, to be anything. So, uh, it really is a bizarre thing. And it became a thing where when, when the merch company became successful enough, it became, well, guess what? You're no, no longer just Todd Kearns. <laughs> you're, you're Todd Damon Kearns. So, so it, it, it's in, it, it's in the classic punk rock sense of like, you know, uh, uh, all the DOAs and the Sex Pistols and all those kind of things. It was always take your name and then you give it some crazy last name and it's now you've got a punk rock name. It's the greatest. Joey just, Shithead. Yeah, which is when Johnny I was, Rock. <laughs> you know. When yeah. I first started hearing it, I was like, it's great. It's perfect. Um, so yeah. we talked about the podcast and then you've got this cover band. Uh, yeah. I, I want to call it 
toque, but I'm Canadian. It sounds like toque. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So is it, was it a play because it's such a Canadian thing or is it toque? Is it toque? What is it? <laughs> It is Tuke. I mean, we, we are all prairie guys. So okay. to us, you know, it's like it's been such an ongoing conversation about the origin of the word. We're just like, we don't know. We were just they were always just referred to as Tukes when we were a kid. Their hats. Yeah. We were- winter. For those who don't know, a Tuke up here in Canada is almost like a tube like winter hat that you would wear. It's a Tuke. When you're wearing a hat in winter, it's a Tuke. Right. You know what I always use as the example is South Park. Those kids are always wearing tubes. There you go. The pom pom on top. And everybody goes, oh, okay. Um, And everybody knows them in the colder areas. It's just that uh, they're not referred to as toques. But it could uh, be read as toque when you look at it. That's the play. That's that's true. Actually, you know, that'd be very that'd be so much more clever than we are and so much cooler than we are. So Uh, so you started a podcast. Talk a bit about what you're trying to do with that show. It's been a lot of fun to listen to really fun guests because they're probably people from many fans past that, yeah, maybe they've heard of, but not in the construct of a conversation with a buddy who's also been through the mill in the business. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Tuke thing to, you know, we started as a, we would start doing Fitz and I from Slash's band, also Canadian. We would go off and do these Charities in, in Winnipeg where a friend of ours would do a breast cancer charity and be like, can you guys want to throw something together? Be like, hell yeah. And then Fitz came across the idea of like, what if we just played all Canadian music? We're going to Winnipeg. Wouldn't it be fun to do like Harlequin and Streetheart and April Wine and Loverboy and Rush? And I was like, that sounds like a blast. It sounds like to give it some context, to give it like a thing, uh, a definition. And um, we didn't call it Tuke back then, but it started with this guy and that guy and uh, Spider from uh, Lover Boy's bass player who was originally from Streetheart. And then eventually Corey Churko from Shania Twain's band was playing guitar and he's a part of Tuke now. And um, and then as things happen, Corey being a studio guy said, well, why don't we start recording some of these songs? Wouldn't that be cool to like uh, my, my, my whole operant, uh, uh, the whole idea to me was sort of like, what if somebody in South America was hearing this song by Streetheart that they would never possibly have heard if we didn't record it or somebody in Japan or somebody in and that absolutely did happen. So we just started recording versions of these songs because we loved them so much. And it's all the music we grew up on. And um, and then we had to give it a name. So we tried to think of something Canadian. And Took was sort of like one of those things where we all came from the prairies. And it was like, because you got two guys from Saskatchewan, one guy from Winnipeg and one guy from Alberta. So um, Shane Gallus on drums. And then uh, that became what we did. And then we, the last thing we did, we wrote an original song and that did really well for us. So now it's, you know, why we've been sort of focusing more on original music. Um, we, during the COVID shutdown, we started Took Talk, Took Talk Tuesdays at two, every Tuesday we do that. And then I started my own thing on Thursdays. Um, so the Canadian, the, the Took one really sort of focuses more, well, I, I generally sort of focuses more on Canadian um bands, Canadian artists, Canadian people that we grew up on, but it's sort of kind of gone all over the map. We've had Kim Mitchell, we've had John Arden, who was really kind enough to come in. Sebastian Bach came on once because he is Canadian. I think he was totally confused as to what it was or what was going on, but he came on. (laughs) He knows us from Slash's band. He's like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Um, And that was a lot of fun because, you know, we just had Phil X on last week from Bon Jovi because he's also Canadian. And, uh, you know, just a lot of like, you know, the music we grew up on and, and it's sort of contextualized in that whole world of, you know, we all have this universal language, even though sometimes the prairies is really light years different than 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 uh, 
whether it's Vancouver or Toronto, it sort of has its own thing. So we like to kind of talk about that. So what was it like growing up in Montreal? Was it like growing up in Toronto as far as the music scene goes? But a lot of the music we all love goes all the way across the country. And then my own thing that I do on Thursdays has literally just started as as board guys during COVID <laughs> talking to each other. You know, and I, I've talked to everybody. I've talked to Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses and Richard Fortas from Guns N' Roses and Frank Bello from Anthrax and 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 Dave Ellison from Megadeth, uh, Steve Stevens, like anybody, who, you know, and, and I find that we all, when I call them, I, Todd Kern, Todd Dammitt Kearns talks to his friends is what I started calling it. <laughs> and and I, I'm friendly with most of these people, but um, I don't know that we're like besties. But, um, you know, I've been very fortunate enough to to cross so many paths in this business. And um, and just like I love I love hearing stories. I played with this thing, uh, Raiding the Rock Vault here in Vegas that you brought up. Yeah. And I would sit there backstage because it's like it's Howard Leese from Heart and Blas Elias from Slaughter. And I would just sit there and listen. You I'm that guy. I'm like and I would just be sitting there listening to Blas tell me a story about touring with Kiss and Eric Carr and all this kind of stuff. And I would just be like and I'm just such a rock and roll nerd that I'd be like. Man, people would love to hear this story. Great you know stories, I mean? yeah. And I, I just, you know, I just started kind of like let's, let's just hang, you know what I mean? And and that just sort of became the thing of like, I don't really consider it a podcast because that sounds way too grown up, and I don't consider it an interview. Like people, yeah, you did a good job of that interview, and I'm like, I, I thought it was just a chat. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? Like, I don't really think it's, you know, I'm I'm sort of swaying it where I'm asking most of the questions, but um, it's mostly just hanging out with friends and talking about stuff because we're all sitting around waiting for the world to, to, to go back to normal. And eventually there won't be time to really be doing much of this. So I was going to say, we probably won't see this much stuff from you when the shows start back up, because I think all of you folks, musicians are going to be extremely busy. People, people are going to want to get back. They're going to pay a lot of money to go back. They are going to pack shows that wouldn't have been packed before. There's going to be a lot of pent up demand to see people like you perform. There's no doubt in my mind. I'm glad to hear you say that because I've had this conversation too, where, you know, some people are just terrified that this is somehow going to change. Like I remember somebody saying to me once, like, do you think maybe the, the streaming concerts is going to change like no one's going to want to go to concerts anymore if they can nope. just sit in their house and watch streaming concerts. I go, no that's way. like saying, that's like saying, come over to my house and I'll show you the slideshow of my trip to Alaska. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, well, YouTube would have killed it already if that were the case. A hundred percent. So I think that the, 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 the ceremony of going to a show will always be, um, important. And I think we all, and I mean, everybody, the musicians, cause I'm still consider myself an audience member. I still, you know, I, I was Paul McCartney was going to he's got a new record out. I, I would love to be going to see that concert. Um, right. That's not going to happen until it can. So to me, it was just kind of like, uh, you know, when it comes back, I really honestly believe it's going to be such a traffic jam of new music. I agree. Everybody's everybody's writing and recording right now. There's going to be like in Montreal, you're going to on a Wednesday night be going like, well, which of these five bands do I get? Should I go see? Because I, <laughs> well, I also I, think the bands are going to be able to charge double and they're going to sell out. People are going to remember what it was like to be home and and not take in that feeling, which couldn't happen. People go, you know, Slash will be here next year. He'll be at that festival. I don't think we're going to people are not going to say I'm making another chance to see them. They're going to go. They're going to go. I think. I think that that's actually interesting that you bring that up because a lot of it, like when you take into account Eddie Van Halen passing away, you know, it's sort yeah. of like that kind of thing of like, Prince, oh, I'll go, Bowie, I'll see yeah. them. Yeah. I'll, I'll go see them next year. 
It's like next year may not happen. And the, and the fear at this point with this happening is however long this takes to get sorted out is, is how much older Mick Jagger is or Paul McCartney is sure. by the time things are back or, or Fleetwood Mac or the Eagles or any of your favorite heritage acts. Um, there's really no excuse to not, to not go see them. And I, I think that, you know, I, I'm hoping like you say that I, I'm not looking to, to bilk anybody out of any extra money because, <laughs> you know, well now we can charge even more. We sit there like Mr. Burns rubbing our fingers together. No, but the, but the companies are going to have to make back money. You're going to have people like live nation, which are near monopolies, make a run at it because they're going to know they're going to know they can charge a thousand dollars for Elton John because he's going to sell it in five seconds because nobody's going to one is they've been sitting around not buying concert tickets and stuff for so long and two is they're not going to want to risk that and they're going to want the moment back people are going to want to recapture what they missed this no. is going to be a it's going to be the roaring where people are talking about the roaring 20s it's going to be like that for live music there's no doubt in my mind i mean the challenge is will there be enough smaller venues to support the up-and-comers but for the bands that have infrastructure already people are going to be hungry to see anybody uh, yeah i think it's going to be a very exciting time i think it's you know like you like you know like i was saying it's like there's there's every musician right now who can't play is sitting writing music recording music figuring out what they're going to do and and a lot of us are have product and are holding back on releasing it because like i know a, a multiple acts out there the foo fighters a bunch have have product and are ready to go but there's no sense releasing it if you can't support sure. it yeah. because we all know that the record industry is such in the 21st century that we have to kind of it's the road that is the paycheck these days. Yeah. So, um, so it's going to be really interesting watching when things come back to quote unquote normal, how things will all sort of play out. There's a million other things I want to talk to you about from things like the kiss cruise to you being inducted into the BC walk of fame to you've got clothing lines, but I think I want to end it by just thanking you because what really brought me to wanting to speak to you is not just reconnecting with you know, we talked about Robert Mason from, from Lynch Mob, who's a mutual friend, and Lon Friends used to be Rip, who's a mutual friend, but Chris Brogan, who has been a close friend yeah. of mine for a long time, was a buddy of yours. And the culmination of people saying, you need to speak to Todd, you need to speak to Todd, really came recently when uh, you did the cover of When I'm With You by Sheriff, which is an amazing song that I've always loved. Over the years, I've had the chance to get to know Freddie Kirchie, the singer, and Steve DeMarchi, who was the guitarist, and they've got history with Hart and the band Alias and all this sort of crazy stuff. Yeah. That song, by the way, is one of the craziest stories in rock and roll, too, how it became this massive hit uh, once again out of the blue. But just hearing your band cover it and you singing it and the way it played, it was just a killer job on that tune, man. It was amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's like one of the another one of those songs that's you know, in the grand tradition of Tuke is, you know, it's such an endless list of songs of Canadian songs that we love. And we were approached about recording just an acoustic covid video, you know, like just the four of us playing because some of us are in Vegas, some of us are in L.A. and and just kind of like, you know, and we thought, well, let's do that. Um, we'd love to do that sheriff song. That'd be great. And then. Corey suddenly finds himself in the studio building this thing and, and he just got like, you know, he's just, he's one of those guys. It's like no stone left unturned. And Clearly. Then, <laughs> and then Clearly. I get into it. I'm like, and I, I realize once you're into it, you're like, Oh, Oh, this is that song. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's, like, it's no joke. It's like, I'm suddenly stepping into the ring with Muhammad Ali here. It's like, okay, uh, here we go. Cause Freddie Kirchie, you know, that recording is, is, is the benchmark really. So, and it was, uh, it, you know, it's challenging. It's great. We, we've talked, song, we had, yeah. we had Freddie on Tuke talk uh, a while back and, and what an amazing dude and what a great story. But, um, yeah. And I, w I was in LA 
back then. I remember being in LA when it had that rebirth. And I remember driving around LA and that song would play on the radio. I go, why is this song? Why? Like this song is an old, at at that time, I thought it was an old Canadian song. And I was like, why is this song? Like, why is it happening? And they're like, it's a big hit. And I was like, I didn't understand because it, for those that don't know, the, the song had had its life in Canada and wherever internationally, and then it went away. And then for whatever reason, for it years, just, it was years for years. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how long it was later that it just suddenly resurfaced and was bigger than ever. Um, and it really, you know, I, I, it was such a weird timing because I'll, alias kind of came off the heels of that to be like, Hey, that's Correct. those guys. That's the guy, you know, those are the guys. Yeah. And there was a lot of litigious things happening with that song. It was locked up in copywriting issues with songwriters and producers as a whole drama behind that song. But what made it unique is exactly correct that it was a couple of years after and Freddie, uh, the singer Kirchie and Steve Marcher, the guitar player had met up with the two other founding members of heart, Steve Fawson. And I can't remember the other person's name. And Roger Fisher? Wasn't Roger Fisher? The drummer. Name? It was the drummer who, oh, yeah. who is now oh, in, uh, not Leonard Skinner. That's, uh, oh, what band? It, oh, I can't remember. I want to say Foreigner. It's not Foreigner, but it was one of those. And um, for, yeah, they were about to release this debut, which also had a lot of accolades and went on to do quite well. But then they had this strange hit out of nowhere with a band they were no longer in. It was a crazy story. It's very crazy. But I mean, as I've said to a lot of my friends, it's 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 such a fascinating thing because it's really the only way to be immortal is to have music out there. And and, you know, long after we're dead and gone, it's, you know, things like when I'm with you will be (laughs) be floating around and, uh, you know, and and that's that's kind of the the beautiful thing about music is it's like like I said, when we when we started doing the toque thing, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if. I mean, because there's somebody somewhere who's hearing the Tuke version who really never heard the other version of the original version by Sheriff. Um, so that is kind of one of those things that, you know, it is we are Im- ambassadors in that way to you know, in Japan. Someone's hearing when I'm with you by Sheriff, as done by this group, Tuke. Yeah. And, so and for those of, who do know, they know that it's one of the longest and hardest notes to hit at the end. And so for those who do know, like I am, I'm almost wanting to fast forward to see, will Todd hit this note? Todd hits the note. <laughs> you hit the note and held the note. So that's impressive. It's funny because it was like, it, it wasn't without great effort. I'll tell you that. No, I, yeah. I, made, I made the joke to Freddie that I was like, I've only recently come out of the coma after singing that. <laughs> yeah. All the blood rushes out of your head when you do that. Oh, it was, yeah. I'm like, and the funny thing, when you hear Freddie tell the story, it's like he, he wasn't doing it to be some Guinness world book of records holder. He was doing it because he was just holding the note going like, how do we end this kind of thing? And it's just, you know, cause that's just how he sings. He's not uh, he's so I, powerful. I always, I've always told the story of how when you're a kid and you're growing up and you're hearing, I don't know, Bon Scott or, you know, whoever, Ronnie James, Dio, whoever you think is a great singer, you're killing yourself to sing like these guys, but that's just the way they sing. Yeah. You know I mean, Bon Scott just opened his mouth and that's the way he sang. Freddie Kirchie opened his mouth. That's the way he sings. The rest of us are trying to go like, okay, what? You know, and, yeah. and, and, it just, it really is just years and years and years of doing this that I, I can even get anywhere close to being able to step in the same shoes as a guy like Freddie. So, and Freddie did um, some great solo work even after Alias that went recognized absolutely. kind of in Canada, but didn't, didn't float like it should have. And you're right in that some people can learn how to sing. Then some people are just born with it. And as they get better at it, they, they just transcend. I mean, Freddie Kirchie has a transcendent male voice. It's impossible to replicate. It's a crazy thing to hear. 
No, it, and it's like I've jumped into this thing with Tuke a thousand times where it's been like, hey, we want to cover the head pins. Awesome. Let's do that. Right. We want to cover Toronto. You know, and I'm like, great. And then I stop and I go, wait a second. You mean like head pins with Darby Mills, the screaming female? <laughs> right, right. And I go, OK, here we go. So I record that. I did a version of we did a version of Ironic by um, Alanis. Alanis Morissette. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, oh, boy, it's like it really has forced me to kind of like dig in whenever we do this kind of thing, which I, you know, in its own way, too, has been has been really rewarding. And now we have original music coming out. So we'll see if anybody gives it gives a damn about that. <laughs> they will, Todd. They will. I can't thank you enough for your time. It was great to catch up. Great to hear the stories. I know that most people will be able to catch slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the conspirators soon at some point on the road. I can't imagine slash not wanting to hit the road the second that everyone's able to. But let people know where to best connect to you. You're doing a ton of stuff. Uh, where, where do you want people to go to find out more? <laughs> um, well, I'm on all the social stuff. I mean, well, within reason. I, I don't understand. You know, I'm not a Snapchatter or a TikToker. But, uh, you know, I'm on Todd Todd Kearns basically everywhere except for Twitter. I'm Todd Damick Kearns. So That's fine. Todd Kearns on Facebook, Todd Kearns on Instagram, and Todd Damick Kearns on uh on uh, Twitter and they all have a blue check. I mean, I have a Facebook page. That's a, uh, a professional page and I have a personal page. So, but people kind of figure that out. So I'll you can, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. That's great. Todd, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Mitch. Mm.